The idea of genetic engineering may conjure visions of futuristic horror, such as mutant human beings with peculiar powers. But some novels and stories, particularly within utopian literature, imagine more positive trends in human development, whether driven by science or by natural evolution. In this podcast, Sarah Lohman considers the complexity of approaches to evolution and eugenics in utopian fiction, and suggests that the genre itself has evolved in its depiction of these issues over time. This talk was recorded as part of the series Late Summer Lectures, organised by the Department of English Studies at Durham University in 2017. We're all familiar with uh, one of the main elements of horror in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World of 1932, the use of genetic engineering to create a disciplined, efficient, and largely docile workforce. The novel is, as Perinder points out, a satire on the social effect of various advanced technologies, but genetic engineering stands out as a particularly dystopian element. Indeed, though, as Gregory Clays writes, eugenics might well be described as the Darwinian utopia. Along with eudaimonics, the striving for a happy life, and euthanasia, the striving for a happy death, or at least the absence of pain and suffering, it is part of a triumvirate of goals that Perinder sees as necessarily present in any utopian society, while also being open to a more sinister interpretation than utopians customarily give them. In fact, Deborah Benita Shaw points out that Darwin himself, who popularized the theory of biological evolution based on natural selection in his On the Origin of Species in 1859, uh, vacillated between a fascistic disclaiming of the value of social support for the weaker members of a society and an exhortation that all members of a society should feel compassion and sympathy towards the unfit. It was Francis Galton, the inventor of the term negative eugenics in 1883, who fully focused on the elimination of the unfit for the benefit of all. He believed that the worst elements of the poorer classes, those presumed to have subnormal mentalities, would have to be physically prevented from passing on their infirmities, and that this should be accompanied by a cooperative effort to raise all members of a society to the level of the fit. Actually, accordingly, Perinder points out this aim has shaped utopian literature, which claims to describe the ideal society from its inception. Not only do the fictional inhabitants of utopia live to a greater age, he writes, but utopians are usually imagined as being stronger on the average and more beautiful than we are, so that eudaimonics is linked to eugenics. Social life in utopia is pleasing to the eye and to the ear, while visitors and outsiders tend to be awestruck by the sheer physical presence of its citizens, so that at first meeting we are conscious of our own inferiority. The visitor naturally wishes to know how this has come about, and we should pay close attention to the answers. In fact, he suggests that, since designers of utopias from Plato onwards have tended to insist on controls over the choice of a sexual partner and the production of offspring, it can be said that any utopia from before the age of plastic surgery that emphasizes the physical beauty of its inhabitants must be referring to the effects of a deliberate or inadvertent eugenic policy. And moreover, he claims that crucially this applies to supposedly libertarian utopias, such as Bellamy's Looking Backward and Morris's News from Nowhere, quite as much as to those of authors committed to some degree of state-imposed eugenics. 
Indeed, in Plato's Republic, one of the earliest utopian texts, although not officially, that would be Moore's Utopia, which allies the ideal or just mind with the ideal or just city, the breeding of humans is straightforwardly compared to that of animals. Socrates cheerfully declares in Book 9 that we must, if we are to be consistent, and if we are to have a real pedigree herd, uh, make the best of our men with the best of our women as often as possible, and the inferior men with the inferior women as seldom as possible, and bring up only the offspring of the best. In Moore's Utopia, the first official literary utopia from 1516, a similar comparison is made as the choice of a mate is compared to the purchase of a horse. Perhaps more significantly, however, men and women who are to be married must present their naked bodies to each other before the marriage contract is signed, which Perinder is quick to identify as serving the primary purpose of revealing any physical deformity, including blemishes that might be transmitted to the next generation. Likewise, the supposedly uh, libertarian socialist utopia Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy, a more recent classic from the fin de siècle, features citizens of stunning beauty and vitality, which the utopian guide explains as quite deliberately engineered. Perhaps more important than any of the causes I mentioned, he says, as tending to race purification, has been the effect of untrammeled sexual selection upon the quality of two or three successive generations. I believe that when you have made a fuller study of our people, you will find in them not only a physical, but a mental and moral improvement. As such, Perinder believes that looking backward champions a very similar system of natural eugenics to that of Galton, with a primary focus on the solution to the labor question through the creation of an obedient and physically fit industrial army. Lastly, he identifies the same tendency in the pastoral utopia of William Morris's News from Nowhere, which was in fact intended as a more libertarian counterpart to Bellamy's state of <coughs> socialism. Here the protagonist is struck by the utopians' well-knit and strong bodies, and we learn that superior types have multiplied while inferior types have died out. The protagonist is, is informed that how to take the sting out of heredity has for long been one of the most constant cares of the thoughtful men among us, and as Perinder observes, a utopia where the sting has been taken out of heredity must be a utopia that is at least mildly eugenic. This assessment seems quite justified, as do Perinder's other assertions of utopian eugenic intervention. However, I would suggest that there is an interesting oversight in Perinder's observations, which end with a somewhat defeatist suggestion that, with Morris in mind, we may question where the eugenic considerations can ever be absent from visions of utopian societies that speak to us of beauty as well as happiness, of the satisfaction of the eye as well as of the satisfactions of the mind. Rather than suggesting the inevitability of eugenic undercurrents in utopian literature, it seems to me that Perinder would have done better to investigate further what this tendency actually means for the success of the utopia in question. He asks whether we can even imagine a better society without imagining and wishing to create better people, but to do so through negative eugenics seems fundamentally at odds with the utopian endeavor of creating better societies, which has traditionally been a central utopian aim. From Plato's fundamentally just Callipolis, in which happiness should supposedly arise from each person playing their part in society, to Moore's explicit utilitarian focus, in which the greatest overall happiness is of paramount importance, as is to help one's fellow men to that end, and finally to the socialist utopias of Bellamy and Morris. 
In fact, I suggest that the utopias we have encountered are ultimately not, in fact, at the service of the community, in line with Galton's description of the eugenic aim as a cooperative effort to raise all members of a society to the level of the fit, but merely at the service of the individual. That is, where there should be a guided evolution of the collective, there is only that of the individual citizen, on a hedonistic, aesthetic level, while the collective merely serves to enforce the state of affairs. Oddly, this seems particularly, seems particularly to be the case for the avowedly socialist utopias of Morris and Bellamy, whose entire raison d'etre was to be the depiction of a thriving egalitarian community, socialist utopias. Instead, we are presented with beautiful individual specimens who live in antisocial, inflexible, and repressive societies, which appear to ultimately, paradoxically, be incompatible with both communal and individual happiness, for the sake of appearances. In Bellamy's Boston, for example, the lack of focus on the community is already suggested by a conspicuous absence of any other people besides the protagonists, Julian West's host, throughout the narrative, as we encounter a solitary dining room in a communal dining hall, a disembodied sermon, and none of the friends that the host keeps referring to. Matthew Beaumont points out that it is certainly noticeable that the city glimpsed by West appears to be, in fact, absolutely empty. Meanwhile, the host's explanations reveal a system in which workers are in fact enslaved in the industrial army in assigned tiers and face social isolation and imprisonment if they manage to escape, or are sentenced to solitary imprisonment on bread and water until they co cooperate if they do not. Indeed, the main utopian outcome that we perceive as a result of all this is the beautiful and perfectly formed little family that West stays with and whose daughter he becomes engaged to and in fact happens to be the direct descendant of his previous fiancée, but of a far more refined appearance and character. <laughs> and he doesn't seem to care, really. He doesn't mind at all. He's not even particularly excited. <laughs> that they become engaged, in fact, is the one thing that Perinder points out as an illogical element in this eugenic system. He writes that the girl's father, who is also a doctor, should have been profoundly shocked by her decision to marry such a dubious and atavistic 19th century specimen as Julian West, whose only notable competitive achievement is that he reaches utopia by falling asleep for longer than anyone else has ever done. <laughs> However, it seems that what Perringer describes as a blatant disregard for eugenic risks is, in fact, fully in line with the novel's individualistic focus taken to an extreme. After all, from the privileged reader's perspective, it is ultimately only Julian West himself who gains from the utopia by becoming a part of it, and why should he be concerned that his genetic material is dirtying the gene pool? In Morris's utopia, this risk is elegantly averted as the utopian nowhere turns out to have been a dream, and the protagonist's chosen mate along with it. And yet, we are still grounded in an uncanny look into the lives of people who are refined individuals, but seemingly unable to coexist without societal pressure. For instance, those who do not work on designated tasks during certain seasons are ridiculed, and those who engage in intellectual occupations are excluded from feasts because their work is perceived as too light. Moreover, individuals appear so disengaged from their social and natural environment that their community is stagnant, thoroughly lacking in curiosity and innovation, despite this being a dream. When Guest, the protagonist, notices clumsy, old-fashioned river locks still in use, he is told that they are there because beauty trumps function, and that this is not an age of inventions. Apart from aesthetics, he is informed, 
All other moods have been exhausted. The unceasing criticism, the boundless curiosity in the ways and thoughts of man, which was the mood of the ancient Greek, to whom these things were not so much a means as an end, was gone past recovery. In Plato's and Moore's utopias, there exist similar social coercions. In Plato's Callipolis, for example, the guardians control everyone else, while they themselves must adopt a lifestyle of austere simplicity. And in Moore's utopia, private amusements and travel are subject to severe restrictions, while adultery is punishable by slavery or death. Notably, the social rigidity of the Calipolis can be partially explained by the fact that, according to Sean Sayers, Plato is under the impression that communal and individual interests, in fact, are necessarily coextensive, in that in a well-ordered society, there is no essential conflict between the individual and the community. He says, Plato wants the individual to be totally identified with the community. He will tolerate the development of individuality only insofar as it accords with the demands of a very authoritarian society. Thus, although he does not deny individuality, he has an extremely limited and restricted conception of it. This would perhaps lead to a highly evolved society in turn if these interests were indeed coextensive. However, they clearly are not, as we've seen. In Moore's Utopia, on the other hand, there is not even an attempt to showcase egalitarian communal happiness. Individual heads of households seem well off and free in almost every respect, while their children and wives suffer most and benefit least from the state's idiosyncrasies, in that they are additionally ordered to obey the men's women, sorry, men's whims. Wives are subject to their husbands and children to their parents, and both must kneel before their superiors for regular confession. In fact, besides the eugenic focus on individuals at the expense of the community, the suppression of everyone but the privileged male individuals that the reader is meant to identify with appears to be a common theme in these societies. As in Moore's Utopia, women in Bellamy's Boston and Morris's Nowhere are expected to do all the household tasks and have fewer career options. And those in Looking Backward are even confined to a separate industrial army with less prestigious jobs that they must then leave when they start families. These women may be beautiful, strong, and healthy, thanks to generations of eugenic breeding, but this is not necessarily to their own benefit. They are there to please the upper-class middle uh, white male protagonists who imagine these societies where they, and men like them, can lead their best lives. Interestingly, there is in fact a utopian text which Perrineur does not mention, published in 1871, just a couple decades before the publication of Bellamy and Morris's novels, that imagines what might happen if men were made to give up their privileged position, their privileged status in utopia. In Edward Bulmer Lytton's The Coming Race, the protagonist comes across the subterranean society of the Thrillia, a magnificent race of people living inside the hollow earth. They are described as incredibly beautiful, both godlike and sphinx-like, owing their genetic superiority to their acquired ability to siphon and manipulate a certain energy called thrill. Moreover, as the women are particularly adept at mastering thrill, there has been an elimination of conventional gender roles and the toppling of patriarchal privilege. However, we learn that for some reason, this has led to a stagnant egalitarian society in which there are no opportunities for individuals to distinguish themselves. There can be, apparently, no individual examples of human greatness, no Hannibal, no Washington, no Jackson, no Sheridan, as well as no Shakespeare, Moliere or Mrs. Beecher Stowe, since everyone is happy and there is no crime or sorrow to write about. As such, as Anne Barbara Graff points out, we are left with a fierce Victorian satire on the dangers that women's emancipation could pose on an evolutionary scale. 
There is no hard evidence of eugenics, but the Virilia are a branch of humanity that has developed in parallel to us, thus representing a force uniquely plausible given Darwinian theories of evolution. And the social leveling that women's emancipation has brought about here is seen as a danger to the privileged male individual. As Graf writes, Overlitton rightly confuses socially constructed heredity with biological inheritance to support his paternal vision of the future under threat. What we are in danger of becoming in contemporary Victorian society as a consequence of greater social equality is weak, feminine, and worse, egalitarian, which for Bulwer-Lytton is tantamount to extinction. The coming race then has the right idea and that utopia has been achieved mainly through collective evolution, engineered collective um, evolution, rather than just individualist eugenics, but its author was so caught up in his own viewpoint of patriarchal privilege that he felt the need to equate the loss of the privileged male individual with the loss of individuality as such. However, there do exist some utopian visions in literature that describe egalitarian collective evolution without either undermining the project with individualist eugenics or merely doing so for the sake of satire and derision. And I will finish by taking a brief look at them. These are a handful of feminist utopian novels from the later 20th century, including my favorite, Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time, and Joanna Russ's The Female Man, which Tom Moylan describes as critical utopias, in that they dwell on the conflict between the originary world and the utopian society opposed to it, so the process of social change is more directly articulated. So it's actually made clear how we get to that point. In other words, they create utopia for those who need it most, particularly women and other marginalized groups, which in turn means that their focus on collective social development is a necessity rather than a gimmick. While there is certainly evidence of ongoing genetic manipulation, and the utopians themselves are described as strong and opposing, the primary focus is on these developments being at the service of the community. On the all-female utopian planet of While Away in The Female Man, for example, the women take turns applying their strength to whichever hard physical labor currently requires helpers. And there's even an element of cyborgian human-machine evolution in that elderly women in particular integrate themselves into sophisticated technology in order to run routine machinery, dig people out of landslides, oversee food factories with induction helmets on their heads, their toes controlling the green peas, their fingers the bats and controls, their back muscles the carrots, and their abdomens the water supply. As Susanna Martins writes, the women's bodies and wills thereby become indistinguishable from the technological and organic entities with which they interact, thus demonstrating a form of post-human cooperative evolution that in turn facilitates the survival of the entire community. In the utopian society of Matapoiset, described in Women on the Edge of Time, meanwhile, sophisticated genetic engineering takes place in the breeding facilities, but only to mix genes throughout the population so as to eliminate prejudice and discrimination. Again, very much at the service of the community. As Connie, the protagonist, is told, we broke the bond between genes and culture, broke it forever. We want there to be no chance of racism again. We don't want the melting pot where everybody ends up with thin rule. We want diversity where strangeness breeds richness. There is actually a faction in Matapoiset, a group calling itself the Shapers, that is in favor of greatly increasing the genetic manipulation of plants. But this development, too, is carefully debated over a long period of time with regard to its possible value to the community. 
In fact, the communal evolution of both Guanaway and Matapoisin seems only possible because there are no privileged individuals present, and in particular, no patriarchy that is supported by an oppressed female minority. On Wileway, this is possible because there simply are no men. It's debatable why they aren't there. They may have died in a plague, or maybe they died in a war. And uh, they may have been slaughtered by the people of Wileway's Mexican. And the fiercely anarchistic women have decided that their best strategy for survival is to all work for the good of the community. While in Matapoiset, non-hierarchical consensus-based decision-making prevents the rise of power-hungry individuals. And moreover, the aforementioned new breeding technology has freed women from the unequal burden of childbearing, as the protagonist is told. Finally, there was that one thing we had to give up to, the only power we ever had, in return for no more power for anyone. Because as long as we were biologically enchained, we'd never be equal. As such, both the female man and woman on the edge of time managed to showcase societies in which the old utopian promise of an improved society is actually realized, and in which the genetic Im improvement of the individual does not ultimately hinder that of the whole, um, or stand in front of that of the whole, whether in practice or a satirical projection. Moreover, it is worth noting that in both utopian communities, human and post-human advancements are not imposed in the short term by privileged minorities, but arrived upon by a longer-term communal decision-making processes that arise out of necessity, so it's this kind of ongoing process, and are thus organic and unforced. This, in turn, lends sustainability to these utopian developments. After all, as Graf points out, any attempt to harness nature's drive towards perfection in a streamlined fashion is doomed to failure, and there is no way to avoid the fact that evolution is alinear and ateleological. In the end, then, we can perhaps measure the success of any utopia in part by how it characterizes the utopian development of its individual and communal elements, whether advertently or inadvertently, and we can certainly determine a great deal about its social and political agenda in the process. While Graf is quick to remind us that ultimately evolution causes change and adaptation, but not necessarily progress, and never perfection, utopian literature nevertheless presents a set of stimulating thought experiments that explore the role that human involvement should or should not take in this process, as well as the underlying aims and principles that may well help to guide us towards a better and more sustainable path if and when eugenics gradually moves from fiction to fact. Thank you for listening. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 